Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20 will be our key text today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, we continue our sermon series, My True Child, Instructions for the Church from 1 Timothy. And remember that these instructions for the church are rooted in, based in, have their foundation in the relationship of Paul as the mentor to Timothy, his protege as a pastor. Paul planted this church in Ephesus. Timothy is now the pastor of this church in Ephesus. So part of the book he's writing to say, here's how you should conduct yourself as a man of God and a pastor. The other part he's writing to say, here's how the church folks should conduct themselves. And this is why we draw our attention to 1 Timothy. And you see, our title of our sermon today is Changed by the Gospel. Last week, we talked about fake gospels and knowing fake gospels or false teachings or false doctrine, as your scripture may interpret, verses 3 through 11. And that theme comes up again in 1 Timothy here in chapter 3. But this week, we're talking about the gospel and how it changes us. So I have a couple questions for us. What were you before you came to faith in Christ? What was your life like? Were you a bad person? Hateful? Angry? Rude? Selfish? Sinful? What had you done? You might not want to know that. All kinds of evil. The Bible probably didn't even have to tell you it was wrong. You knew it was wrong. You might not have used the word sin, but you knew And then a third question is, what are you? If you are apart from God, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, and you're sitting here today, you're still sinful. But if you've trusted Christ, it may be that you're walking with Him and your life is right where it needs to be. Or it may be that you're allowing sin and self to dominate and you've backslidden It may be that you're so far as being two-faced and hypocritical. But what do you need to continue to do? If we realize that we've got an ongoing problem with habits or sins in our life, what do we need to do about it? We can hide from it. We can hope we don't have to face it. We can act like it's not there. But here's the truth that we need to consider today. The truth is this, that in Christ, what you were does not determine who you are and what you can become. Amen? In Christ, what you were does not determine who you are and what you can become. Your past does not dictate your future. Let's say that again because I need a few more amens. Your past does not dictate your future. Write that down. With the sovereign God, the God of the whole universe, involved in your life in a personal love relationship, He sent His Son, Jesus, to save you from your sins, not to leave you in your sins, but to change you to be like Christ, exceedingly and abundantly beyond your expectation or imagination, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, that your life is, can and should be different. 
I have to confess to you, when I first uh, prepared this sermon series, I looked at this passage of Scripture, and I kind of went, meh. And then when I read it again, and then when I started to think through it and started to read some commentators who are smarter than me, I went, And I hope you come away with that sense and you can see that I'm a little bit excited about what I got to tell you today based on my study and based on the Holy Spirit here of what Paul has to say. When you first read these verses, you think, ah, this doesn't really fit. You know, those of you who like to analyze the flow of the text and see the arguments Paul's making because, you know, he's like a lawyer and he sets things out place by place. But you're like, this is a digression. Nah, it's not. This is Paul using himself as an example. Paul is saying here, hey, wait a second. Go back to verse 11. That conforms the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. He just mentioned the gospel in verse 11. Now he's going to hold himself up as an example of the gospel. Not because he's selfish, but because he sees how much God has changed him. So if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, would you stand with me as we read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18, Timothy, my son. I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that By following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Pray with me, church. God, our Father, we open your word and we see Paul's testimony. And I don't think there's anybody here who might say, yeah, I'm like Paul. Well, not completely. But he's human and we're human. He has a past and we have a past. And he was who he was in Christ and so are we. As well as the fact that we have a future of becoming more like Christ. So we pray that you'd help us learn from our brother Paul. That we would take these scriptures and put them to heart. We ask it in Jesus name and all God's people said. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So your first question on your outline this morning asks, how does God use my past, positive and negative, to change me or shape me, excuse me? How does God use my past, both positive and negative, to shape me? Now think about it. Most of us don't like unpleasant circumstances. Yet, if you had to admit 
Where did you learn the most? When it was comfortable and easy? Or when it was hard on you and stretched you? Where did you find out the most about your character? Where did you find out the most about Christ in you is the hope of glory? When you couldn't and you had to submit to God because he could. So how does God use my past, positive and negative, to shape me? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of an event in your past that either was positive, it was something that made you feel good and it was a great experience, or negative, it was very difficult for you to go to or go through. And think how God used that to shape you to be more like Jesus, to in, uh, bring out the character of Christ in you. So if you got that in your mind, if you got that in your mind, raise your... Uh, or, okay, I'm not going to call you up here. Don't worry. Now here's what I want you to do, though. Talk to your neighbor. Testimony time. Okay, you got 30 seconds for each of you. Find somebody and tell them, hey, here's how God used this incident in my past. Just one incident, positive or negative, to shape me. Go. Come on, make friends. Talk, talk. All right, we'll give you another 30 seconds or so. I hear a lot of good conversation, a lot of laughter, so it's not all bad, right? So while you're finishing your comments, here's a quick commercial. This is why you need to go to Sunday school or be involved in a small group, right? So you can talk to people about what's going on in your life. You can get support and encouragement and prayers for those sort of things. So all of us have examples, probably numerous examples. Every day we could pull out examples of positive and negative things that God has used to try to shape us to be like He calls us to be. Remember that truth that in Christ, where we were doesn't determine who we become. What we've done doesn't determine what we will do. Our past does not dictate our future. So let's go to Scripture and see that clearly before us. Because the first thing on your outline, your first point there, is a call that God invites me to follow Him. A call. God invites me to follow Him. I love this, that even in his testimony, I see that Paul is systematic in walking us through. And I hope you see that as you walk through with me. Verse 12, our first verse to consider, where he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. So our Lord, he's writing to a church, because he can say our Lord, not my Lord, but not yours. Who has given me strength. So now he's talking about himself. That same word that uh, used in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, you could look at that and say, okay, he used that pronoun our, you know, plural. But then he said, he considered or gave me strength considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Well, that sounds pretty selfish of Paul. But remember what he's doing. He's using himself as an example, not because he's proud of himself. You're going to get the rest of his testimony here in a minute. But just to say, consider where I was at. That he considered me faithful. He appointed me to his service. And he gave me strength. Paul is Speaking humbly, he's saying these things come from God. Think about this fact about your calling. Your calling is not from you. Someone else called you to it. And for believers in Jesus, it is God who calls us. 
Ivan Mesa wrote this. And there are three F's here. You can write these down because these are pretty easy. So just write uh, the first phrase, your calling is not. Write down, your calling is not. And then I'm going to give you some F's, right? Your calling is not for you. F-O-R. Your calling is not for you. That's the first F. The second one, your calling is not from you. You did not call yourself to be in Christ, to be transformed by Christ, and to do whatever it is God has called and equipped you to do for Him. And the third one is your calling is not future tense. Your calling is not future tense. It's not something that you're going to be someday. You could say, well, God has called me to be an international missionary to China, and I'm still in America. But I want to say to you, well, what has God called you to do right now as long as you're still in America? It's not about what you'll do once you get there. It's about who you are or where you live right now and what you're doing right now. Yes, God wants you to do great things in the future, but where you are now and what he is doing in you now is preparing you to do the greater things then. Amen? So your calling is not for you. It's not from you, and it's not future tense. We didn't choose our calling by definition. Our calling is from God. God calls us. We don't call ourselves. And that's what I see there. Paul is humbly saying, I'm telling you an example about me, but I'm not the one that called me. God's the one that called me. God's the one that strengthened me. God's the one that equips me. It's all about him. And I love this. That even in this, when we first read verse 12, we think, well, that's a little selfish. When we take time to think about it, it's not selfish at all. It's completely humble and demonstrating biblical wisdom that it's all about God. Let's move on to your next point. No matter what I used to be. Can I get an amen? God invites me to follow him no matter what I used to be. No matter what. Paul's going to describe himself here for us. But no matter what I used to be, I think a lot of us get hung up on that. When I talk to children who realize that they need to trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord, they haven't lived much. Their sinfulness is summed up that, you know, I know I lied to my parents, or I was mean to my siblings, or I stole something from a friend. It's simple, innocent as it should be. When I talk to teenagers who know they need to trust Christ as their Savior, that's when it begins to change. Because based on their age, they begin to think in more abstract concepts, and they begin to see the weight of their sin compared to the glory of God's righteousness. And that's when they begin to think, God wouldn't want to save me. I've done too many bad things. When I talk to adults, they certainly feel that way. And that's one of their excuses. God wouldn't want me. God wouldn't want to save me. And I have one simple question for those folks. I kind of fold my arms and I kind of look at them like this. And I say, so you're telling me your sins are bigger than God? I'm not saying my sins are bigger than God, Aaron. Well, no, that's what you said. I mean, you didn't say it, but you said it. That if what you have done... God could not or would not forgive you for, you're saying your sin has more power than God himself. Oh, no, I'm not saying that, Aaron. 
Exactly. The sovereign God who has all the power of the universe has the power to forgive anything you've done, anything that's been done to you, and to change you for good. Can I get an amen? No matter what I used to be. Let's read verse 13. Look at what it says. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I don't know how many of you could chalk up that you did things as bad as Paul, not that we're comparing ourselves, but dude, this guy persecuted and killed Christians when he was still a Jewish person. He says, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Scripture backs that up. There are points that show us that our willful ignorance ignorance in Romans 10, 3, or increases guilt. 2 Timothy 1.3 says that ignorance with a clear conscience is only marred. But you go back to Numbers and even in Hebrews, Numbers 15, 22 through 31, you see that God gives allowances of extra grace and mercy for those who did things that they did not know were wrong. I know we might say ignorance of the law is no excuse, and that's a cliche, and it is true. If you're speeding and the police officer pulls you over and you say, I didn't see the speed limit sign, and oh, He can still write you a ticket, right? Because you were still speeding. But God in His mercy, remember, grace is when He gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy is when He withholds from us what we do deserve. God in His mercy gives grace, and that's what Paul is saying here. Jesus died for both the willfully sinful and the ignorant. He saves us both. Our sins are not diminished by the fact that we did not know or we did things in ignorance. But God in His mercy changes those things. So God calls us to follow Him no matter what we used to be. Let's move to your second point. Because if God calls you, there is a change. Can I get an amen? That God transforms me in Christ. You see that in verse 14. If God calls you, there is a change. God transforms me in Christ. What does he say in verse 14? The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There is a change. The grace of our Lord. This is the only time that the word grace appears in verses 20 through, or 12 through 20. But this whole passage is really about God's grace. It's a unifying theme. And I love what uh, commentator Donald Guthrie said. Listen to this. He says, Paul could never write long without bringing up grace. For him, it was no mere abstract, but an operative, informative, dominating force, dominating both thought and action. Simple phrase. That and I went, okay, Mr. Guthrie or Dr. Guthrie, you are a smart man, but I needed that simple phrase. Would that my life be so filled with God's grace that I can't think long, can't speak long, can't be long without saying, dude, this is the grace of God for me. And that it's an operative, informative, and transformative force in my life that because of God's grace and because I'm humble enough to realize I could not do it for myself, I would not do it for myself, that God loved me and He saved me, that I'm humbled by that and I'm continually changed by it. Friends, we need knowledge. You need to study the Bible. You need to understand the Bible. But knowledge alone does not transform. Remember, Paul was talking about, in the previous verses from last week, about the myths and genealogies. 
And he said those things are of no effect. It's grace that transforms. It has effect to transform us. He said, Paul says it was poured out on me abundantly. The Greek word there is actually super abundantly. If you read Paul much, you know he likes to speak in hyperbole. He gets a little excited about things, kind of like yours truly. And so Paul says that I got like hyper abundantly with grace. More grace than grace could be. He's that excited about it. And along with the faith and love of Christ Jesus, faith and love are often go hand in hand with grace as they are part of that transformation trio in our lives. So we're changed. God transforms me into Christ no matter how I used to live. Look at verse 15. Paul backs up what he just said in verse 14. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Notice that last phrase. Paul doesn't say of whom I was the worst. Even as an apostle... Even as somebody who's been so filled with God's power that he has healed people, that he's done amazing, miraculous miracles, even Paul said, I'm still a sinner and I'm still in bad shape. He was so humble before God that this wasn't a false humility. He realized his own sinfulness and he wasn't afraid to say it to folks. But notice that first phrase. Here's a trustworthy saying. He's only used that phrase five times, and they're all in the pastoral epistles. And each time, it's followed by some maxim or or some truth. And he added to it in this one that deserves full acceptance. In other words, you better pay attention. All right, church, are you paying attention? Say yes. Yes. Okay, thank you. Are you really paying attention? Okay, thank you. You guys are with me today. So here's the trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that we all need to pay attention to. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Can I get an amen? If you're a sinner, would you raise your hand? Yeah. I mean, all of us are sinners. You might have kept your hand down and been like, oh, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yes, we know that you're saved by grace. But the fact that you admit that you are a sinner, that it's the way we used to live that doesn't keep us from being transformed in how we live now. What was our phrase? What was our understanding, our truth? That in Christ, where you were does not determine who you can become or where you will go. Your past does not dictate your future, no matter how you used to live. So we have a call. We have a change. Let's move on to number three on your outline. Well, three for me, three major points here. An example God loves me to encourage others. God loves me to encourage others. That's verse 16. Look at what Paul says there. But for that very reason that Christ saved him, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that, you know I love the so that, even though my kids hate uh, when I say, you know I love the so that, so that in me the worst of sinners Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. An example that God loves me. God showed me mercy. Literally, I was mercied. And Christ displays his immense patience, unlimited 
Patience that never ceases, that's what it means in the Greek. As an example for other believers. The Greek word here for example is an interesting word. I am not an artist, I don't draw things, but I've seen people who do. And I've seen, you know, like videos on how you do this, you know. Like let's say you're going to draw some character. Uh, Leslie could help me out with this, Leslie's an artist. Don't you like sketch out the form first and just light and then you, you add to it, make it darker? Is there, is there a name for that process or... Sketching. Okay, thank you. All right. I should have asked her beforehand so I would seem smarter than I do right now. But thank you, Leslie. If you've not seen Leslie's artwork, it's pretty cool. That's all I've got to say about it. She's a very talented young lady. And so you just lightly sketch out something to draw the outline. And then you fill in the details, right? And then you make it bold or darker. You know, that's not the right shape for that nose. I've got to change it. You can do that. That's the Greek word here. The Greek word is a sketch, an outline, a brief illustration by a writer, an example that Paul is saying, this is just, my life is just a a little outline of what Christ can do. I'm just a, a little sketch of what Christ can do. I'm not all the way there. I'm not the finished product. I'm just the outline, the sketch. Let's go on in verse 17. Verse 17 says, I honor Jesus for his work in me. I'm an example. In verse 17, Paul says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see what Paul's doing here. Basically, he's given this, here's my testimony. It's all about God's grace that's changed me. And then he does this Pauline thing. Pauline means the thing that Paul does, right? He does this Pauline thing. He throws in a doxology to end the paragraph at least the way we have it written down, and it's accurate in its translation. The doxology is, I'm going to give some praise. It's kind of like he's saying, amen, praise God. And he sums it up, not just in a short way, but a big way. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, and the only God, to be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If I had some rhythm, that would have come out better. God bless me. Y'all pray for me. Two weeks from now, I have to dance on stage at my daughter's recital. If any of you have ever seen me, try to... I don't have rhythm. I told them to put me on the back row, but there's this part where the instructor wants the dads to go on the front row. It's not going to be pretty. (laughs) Literally, pray for me. More than that, pray for my daughter, who will be embarrassed by me. I'm going to try my best, right, Roger? Us dads are going to do our best. Roger's got to do it, too. I'll let him stand in front of me. Maybe he's got more rhythm. What does he say here about that? The king, immortal, invisible. That I honor Jesus for his work in me. When's the last time we took time to say, this is what Jesus has done for me and how he's changed me. And pointed that out to others. And called that back to him. Friends, you know, you can pray. I hope you pray all the time. And you can and should in your prayers give glory to God, give honor to God for what He's done in you. But have you done this? Have you written down things? Almost like a love letter to God? I mean, it can be in a journal or someplace that's private to you. Um, It doesn't have to be a poem or a song that all of us need to see unless you want to share it with us. That'd be pretty cool too. But that you take some time and you think through systematically, who is God? What has He done in me? 
what attributes of God can I be thankful for because, man, I really needed them. And write it out to him. Just like you'd write a love letter to your spouse or to your significant other. Just like you'd write a thank you card to somebody who you're saying, hey, here's what you did, but here's who you are. Thank you. Have you done that to God? Maybe you need to put that on your to-do list. You have permission to pull out your phone right now and make yourself a to-do. Love letter to God or thank you note to God. However you want to put that down. To honor Him for His work in you. And remember that His work in you, His calling of you, was not just for you. He's called you. He's changed you. He's made you an example. Why? For others. That you might serve others. Let's go on in our scripture and get your fourth major point. Is a command. A command that God challenges me to obedience. Now, I used a strong word, challenges there, because I didn't want to use the same word command again or instruct. Because look at what he says there in verse 18. So here you get the father-son thing again. Paul was not literally Timothy's father. He's like a spiritual father to him, and he calls him son here. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight. Think about all that is implied just in this one verse. You're my son. This is the affection I have for you, the care I have for you. And I give you this instruction, literally an order of command, like a military order of command. But then in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, that when you were just a kid, it was prophesied that you would be this kind of godly man and have this kind of gifts. So Timothy, he's reminding Timothy of what God has called Timothy to be. When's the last time you reminded yourself of what God's called you to be? Reminded someone around you what God's called them to be? We need some more of that. And then he says, so that you might fight the good fight by following them. It's going to be tough, Timothy. It's going to be a fight. I'm not um, shying away from the facts here. I'm telling you the truth, bro. It's not going to be easy to pastor this unruly bunch of folks known as the church at Ephesus. But look at verse 19. Holding on to faith. And a good conscience. Some have then rejected these. And so have shipwrecked their faith. The word rejected means violent and willful. That they didn't just say, nah, I'm not going to do that. Kind of slough it off and walk away. They were like, no, no. How many of you have a toddler or remember those days when your child actually yelled no at you? They get that ugly, screwed up look on their face and you're like, "Uh, I can make you do what I want you to do. (laughs) God's kind of like that with us sometime, right? He's like, you're a toddler. Come over here, do what I want you to do. A command that challenges us to obedience no matter what. But look at what he said. They have rejected these faith and good conscience and have shipwrecked their faith. The meaning, the understanding behind this, this idea of them shipwrecking their faith, is that correct doctrine doesn't guarantee a useful Christian life. Right understanding demands a right response. Faith should produce good works, not just good platitudes. He's saying because they turned away from 
the true gospel, the transformative gospel, because they're following false doctrines and false teachings, the fake gospel. They have all this knowledge, but this knowledge has not changed them to become who Christ wants them to become. Timothy, I'm giving you a command to challenge you to obedience to the gospel so that you can be who God wants you to come, not become, not who I want you to become, Paul is saying. Because, get your last point here. Leave it to Paul to make sure to give a warning. I love Paul, and I love the fact that he writes so honestly about himself and about human nature, about how who we are gets in the way of what God wants to do in us. And listen to this last point, that God sovereignly judges sin. Because Paul is honest enough to call a spade a spade. Paul is honest enough to say sin is sin. Paul is honest enough to say, friends, we're going to continue to struggle to be who God has called us to be. Look at verse 20. So he's talking about some who have rejected faith and good conscience. So remember, they said, no, it was a violent, willful rejection. And they've shipwrecked their faith. And then he gives examples. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy 2, um, 17, as a heretical teacher. There are two different Alexanders Paul might be uh, um, referencing here. One is a Jew, uh, referenced also in Acts chapter 19, verse 34. And the second, a metal worker who did Paul great harm in 2 Timothy 2, 14. So it's probable that he's talking about that Hymenaeus and one of these two Alexanders that have opposed Paul and opposed the gospel. They have literally rejected the true gospel and have shipwrecked their faith. And what does Paul say about them? Whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Whoa. Uh, So Paul, yes, he's an apostle, Yes, he's a missionary. Yes, he's done amazing things and has demonstrated the sovereignty and authority of God in his life. He has the authority or ability to hand somebody over to Satan. I don't know about you. That challenges my theology a little bit. I'm like, uh, where does he get this ability? But we have to think about where he's going. I think Paul uses this to jolt us into, whoa, I better pay attention to this. What was it they got handed over for? They rejected, strong word, no. Good conscience and a clear faith. Listen to what Dr. Tommy Lee says, and I love Dr. Lee. You've heard me say that. You'll hear me say it again. Two interpretations of this. One that Paul literally had gave them over to Satan in order that they might get a physical illness or disability that Satan would inflict on them in order to try to get their attention. Spiritually, he couldn't shake them. So physically, if we bring them down physically, can we get their attention to sober them up, to bring them back to God, to a good conscience and a clear faith? Or it might be a euphemism contrasting the life in the church, a life of faith and good conscience. The life in the spirit to the life outside the church where you're in the hands of Satan where you're living things on your own and whichever way your conscience takes you or whichever way the tides of humanity take you, you've got nothing you can do about that and life's going to be harder on you apart from Christ outside of the fellowship of believers. Either way, 
We get the idea that Paul was removing these men from the church fellowship. And it wasn't just a primitive practice, but a corrective, even formative example for us. That when people so oppose gospel teaching, solid biblical teaching, and teach on heresy and reject the truth of the scripture, that we should take the steps to remove them from our fellowship. There's another sermon or two behind that one. I'm not recommending we do that here, and I hope we never have to. But scripture teaches, and this passage verifies, that sometimes we may. Because Teach them not to blaspheme. In other words, they've already blasphemed. That means to slander God. Write down James 2.7. Write down Colossians 3.8. James 2.7 and Colossians 3.8. And you've got two questions to apply these truths. So we've had a call. Because we've been called by God, we've been changed by God. We've been changed in order to be an example for others. And we've been changed in order to live by command that challenges us to obedience in order that we might avoid sin. So here's your question. What has God called me to become? What has God called me to become? Again, we could say, oh yeah, well someday I'm going to be a missionary in China. No, no, time out, time out. Let's go back to what even Mesa said. He said, we find our callings with, by, and in serving others. And we fulfill our callings as others fulfill theirs in community. This is why we need to come together as a body of believers. This is why nowhere in Scripture do you see Lone Ranger Christians. They gather together in churches. And they come together in churches. And yeah, sometimes we get on each other's nerves. Sometimes we disagree. Sometimes we hurt each other's feelings. Sometimes even, and it's true, church members sin against other church members. Believers sin against other believers that even don't belong to their church. And it hurts us worse than when it's a worldly person because these people should know better. But God calls us together because as brothers and sisters together that are going to cause some friction sometimes, are going to get on each other's nerves sometimes, and are even going to sin against each other sometimes, it's in that community that we learn our calling. Through Sunday school, through small groups, through Bible studies, through doing something like your shape survey and finding out how can I serve in our church, we see God at work in us. Even Mesa goes on to say, look at your life. Apart from sin, your calling is whatever your life consists of right now. Apart from sin, your life, your calling is whatever your life consists of right now. Listen, here he goes on to say, I don't mean to imply that callings never change. They can and often do. Calling is a process rather than a destination. You might need to write that down. Calling is a process rather than a destination. Since life is ever changing as we likewise change. Since life is ever changing as we likewise change. So think about this. God's called you to himself to be like Jesus, but not to stay like you are when he calls you. Because today you ought to get a little more like Jesus than you were yesterday. And the next day you ought to get a little more like Jesus than you were the day after that. And so on and so on. Every now and then, you know, we take a few steps back and we're a little more like ourselves and a little less like Jesus. Sometimes we take a whole lot of steps back. But our life and our calling is to become More like Jesus as we obey and we are separated from sin and we are transformed into Christ so that as we mature, no matter our age, we look like, we behave like 
Jesus. No matter what we were, no matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, our past does not dictate our future. And our calling is right where we're at. Friends, you may be the only Jesus other people in your life know. You may be the only Bible they read. I know those are cliches, but they're true. Your calling is who you are, where you're at in Christ. Live that way. Live that way. Let's pray. God, our Father... We're humbled by the fact that you loved us enough to save us. And not only did you save us from the penalty of sin, but you continue to save us from the presence of sin and the way it works in our lives. And we realize that means we need to submit to you and seek to obey your word. We need to spend time with you in a relationship through your word and in prayer and all kinds of spiritual disciplines so that we might become more like Christ. You've called us to change us, to be an example, and to obey You. So that we might be more like Jesus and we might help others be more like Him too. So Father, thank You for Paul's testimony. That no matter what we used to be, our past does not dictate our future nor does it determine our present. And that in Christ, we can be more than we might have ever imagined. So Father, I pray that if you've impressed that anew on someone's mind today, that they would embrace that truth. That if there's a single person here that knows that they've sinned and they've never trusted Christ as their Savior, they'd commit themselves to be a follower of Jesus today. They can come talk to me or a deacon or somebody on the aisle next to them who's already a Christ follower. Father, I pray for those of us who have walked with you, but we've backslidden and we've got into our own selfishness and control and we've allowed fear to take the wheel instead of faith and that we would submit anew to you. That all of us might be more like you, Jesus, we pray. It's in that name of Jesus we do pray. Amen.